Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy, who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the good fortune to live in a couple of other countries for a while, which I think places me in a good position to comment, for my American audience, on some events of note happening outside the U.S. A couple months ago, before Trump's obvious intention to try to steal the election was being widely discussed as a given, I recorded an episode called The Democrats versus the Anti-Democrats, in which I discussed first the various ways in which the Republican Party has been trying to undermine and suppress the vote, and then the very real possibility that Donald Trump could ignore it if it didn't go his way. Yes, I was saying Trump's not going to leave before it was cool, though, to be fair, Bill Maher was there about two years before me. Now, in that episode, I did discuss President Trump's near-constant attacks on the very concept of mail-in voting, but I didn't at the time have the foresight, or frankly, the imagination, to predict that the Trump administration would attempt to basically break the post office at a time when unprecedented numbers of Americans would be voting by mail due to a pandemic which is raging out of control in the United States because of that same administration's tragic mismanagement. Unfortunately, though, that episode has aged pretty well overall. The Trump campaign and their backers in various state governments are actively doing everything in their power to make it harder for people to vote, especially, you know, certain people. But it turns out that I wasn't nearly pessimistic enough in the second half of the episode, where I imagined what Trump might try to do to hold on to power if, despite all their best efforts, the results of the election still don't turn up in his favor. This past week, The Atlantic put out a fairly terrifying article by Barton Gelman, which is based on interviews with Trump administration and campaign officials and relevant Republican state legislators. It's a pretty long article, but if you have an hour or so, after listening to this entire episode of OK Talks and sharing it with all your friends, of course, please, it's worth a read. That is, unless you'd prefer to spend your nights sleeping rather than panicking about the future of Western democracy. The article lays out the contours of a plan to create chaos in the aftermath of the election, to exploit legal gray areas using basically legal brute force to screw with the Electoral College, which, although many of us on the left wish we could just close our eyes and make disappear, is still the only game in town. This plan represents a very scary and very real way in which the Republicans could, in just a couple of weeks, skirt democracy and the will of the majority in order to pull off what amounts to basically a hostile retakeover of the White House. Here's my summary, borrowing heavily from the Atlantic piece, all credit to Barton Galvin for excellent reporting, of what that could look like. First, massively undermine confidence in the vote. Check. Trump has been tweeting in all caps about non-existent voter fraud for ages, and even used this canard to make himself feel better about Hillary kicking his ass in the popular vote. He threw out the idea back in 2016 that his 3 million vote deficit was probably all ballots cast by illegal immigrants. Also, he spent the last six months or so constantly word-vomiting some iteration of I'm complaining very strongly about the ballots, the mail-in ballots. They're going to be rigged very powerfully, very powerfully by the Radical Democrat Party. You'll see they're going to be rigged. You know it. I know it. The Radical Democrats know it. It's very bad, very bad for our country, very terrible. It's a disgrace. Although Trump has massively increased the volume on attempts to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the vote, Republicans have been doing the legwork on this issue for years by parroting the voter fraud thing as an excuse to pass various forms of voter suppression. 
It's worth noting again that the voter fraud argument is a red herring. Studies by various expert organizations have found voter fraud to be almost non-existent to the point where Americans are statistically more likely to be struck by lightning than to commit voter fraud. The next step is to create chaos during and after the election. Now, it's worth noting that this has already kind of started in the form of a horde of Trump supporters who showed up in Virginia to physically block Democrats from voting early. A couple decades back, in I think it was New Jersey, the Republican Party, in an aggressive voter suppression attempt, recruited a whole bunch of what they called poll watchers to basically hang around the polls, menacing voters about the penalties of voter fraud and challenging ballots cast by certain people they viewed as suspicious unreleased poll watchers at the time were former law enforcement. Has the Republican Party refrained from engaging in this gross behavior over the last 30 years just out of the goodness of their hearts and because they didn't want to appear creepy and authoritarian in public, you ask? No, they haven't done it because they were enjoined from doing so by a court decision a while back. But unfortunately, that legal measure expired this year. So naturally, Trump's Republican Party has recruited a huge number of poll watchers, who we should expect to see in particularly heavy numbers in, I would hazard a guess, minority-heavy precincts in swing states. They'll probably also try to create chaos by basically upscaling the 2000 Florida recount debacle to the national level, having legal personnel on hand all over the place to challenge ballots, you know, beyond just the creepy poll watchers. Their job has actually been made easier in advance by the fact that Trump has so politicized mail-in ballots. This means that a huge number of Republicans this year are planning to vote in person, while a huge number of Democrats are planning to vote by mail. Thus, Republican lawyers at polling places basically know that they can preemptively target mail-in ballots as being ones that are more likely to be Democratic votes. Unfortunately, at this point, we need to be realistic about the fact that some of the chaos that takes place on and around Election Day will probably take the form of some kind of straight-up violence in the streets. The question now is whether Trump will need to actually take the initiative to instigate any himself or whether he's ginned up his supporters enough to the point where they'll do it for him. But we saw in Portland and other terrible crime and rat-infested Democrat-led cities that sending in Bill Barr's stormtroopers was a pretty effective way to foment chaos as people came out to protest perceived authoritarianism and then the stormtroopers basically attacked everybody. Imagine what might happen if some of these same unmarked, quote-unquote, Department of Justice paramilitary forces start showing up to uh, protect the integrity of the vote in, say, Philadelphia, Miami, Atlanta, Milwaukee. Or Trump could just tweet out calls for his supporters to get violent. And let's not pretend this is some kind of remote possibility. I hate that we have to think this about other Americans, but some of these people want blood, and Trump really appears to want to give it to them. Anybody who doubts this should remember that the mother of Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, the kid who shot and killed several protesters in Kenosha a couple weeks ago with an AR-15 that mommy bought him, got a standing ovation at a Wisconsin Republican Party event recently. Or go look at the video of Trump positively gleeful over reporter Ali Velshi getting hit with a rubber bullet when he was covering a protest. Bottom line, the creation of chaos on and around Election Day makes it easier to move to the next step of the plan, which has to do with state legislatures. Now, during the time I've been outside the United States, whenever I've been in the position of explaining how it's possible that Donald Trump managed to lose the election by 3 million votes and yet still become president, a question that I frankly get asked quite a lot, <laughs> I end up having to explain the Electoral College. This leads me to say, well, whoever wins the popular vote in an individual state, regardless of by how much, gets all of that state's electoral votes. 
But I never end up bothering to explain the legal realities that underpin that, which is that actually, the state's government just appoints the electors a couple of weeks after the election, and traditionally that's been done based on the vote in the state. So if a state government wants, the theory goes, and this theory is bolstered quite a bit by the Supreme Court case that made George Bush the president, here we have to take a second to note that Republicans really don't seem to have a whole lot of success getting elected president without uh, help these days, sad. State governments have a fair amount of leeway to appoint whatever electors they choose. So given a pretext, like, say, delays in the counting of absentee votes, coming in slowly due to the sabotaged post office, which are then declared illegitimate by President Trump, who presumably will have declared victory already on Election Day, coupled with pressure created by chaos and violence in the streets to resolve the issue quickly. The Republican majorities that control the legislatures of a number of swing states could just appoint whoever the hell they want, in this case a slate of Republican electors who will count for Trump, regardless of how it turns out the people actually voted in a given state. Then would come a huge mess over whether Congress would accept the electors, etc. There are more specifics, and I really encourage everybody to go check out that terrifying piece in The Atlantic, but that's the basic takeaway. That appears to be their contingency plan. Hey everybody, before we continue with the episode, I just wanted to take a second to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the podcast, and if you're feeling really charitable, to share it with some other people you think might like it. That way you won't miss an episode, and as the show is just getting off the ground, it's really helpful for getting the word out to other potential listeners. Thanks. Okay, now back to the disaster that is American politics. So if we do in fact manage to come out the other side of the 2020 election with our democracy and the rule of law at least relatively intact, some pretty drastic changes are clearly going to be needed to protect our system from this sort of dangerous uncertainty, both around whether votes that are cast actually count and around the peaceful transition of power. If we don't, someday someone is going to come along who, like Trump, doesn't care about our democratic norms, but unlike Trump is at least competent enough to not bankrupt a casino. And then, well, given the behavior of the modern Republican Party, I would argue even before it became a personality cult centered around the Trump family, but certainly even more so since, it is hardly a remote possibility that it could produce another candidate who considers democracy to be an inconvenience they're disinclined to suffer. Little less Madison, little more Erdogan, as it were. Keep your eye in particular on Senator Tom Cotton. But the more immediate question is about right now. Are they really going to try to pull this? And if they do, will our democracy survive it? Well, led by human landfills like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is probably the single most dangerously amoral person in Washington at the moment, the Republican Party has made it clear that they're not in any serious way committed to democratic norms or precedent or democracy as a system, and are instead realistically bound only by the limits of raw political power. So I've been planning to do a couple of podcast episodes about the retreat of democracy generally, the failure of a couple of democracies in various parts of the world over the past couple of years, and I still may, though at the moment I'm a little more distracted by the potentially impending collapse of our own. One of the common denominators that I've found when I've started looking at this is that democracies don't usually seem to be failing these days anyway as a result of a direct military coup. Um, they fail more as a result of one party coming to power that is clearly more committed to their ideological agenda or to maintaining power than they are to maintaining the rules of the game that they're playing. This is perfectly summed up by something that was apparently once said by Turkey's Sultan <coughs> President Erdogan, 
who said, quote, democracy is like a bus. You ride it until you reach your destination and then you get off. Now, the Republicans had already been conducting anti-democracy power grabs for quite a while with the kind of voter suppression efforts that I discussed more in previous episodes. But recently, they seem to have been becoming really increasingly brazen about it, about the possibility that for them, democracy really may be, as Erdogan said, a bus that they're considering getting off. Take again Mitch McConnell, for example. Now, he might have some passing dedication to a right-wing Republican ideology, but it's proven fairly pliable over his career. His North Star really does seem to be the construction of power for himself and for his party. This is especially clear in the way that he's approached the judicial branch. McConnell is completely dedicated to tilting the courts, without any consideration of precedence, qualification of the nominees, procedure, decorum. As I discussed in more detail in the previous episode, McConnell's spoken or unspoken agreement with a president that he doesn't really have that much in common with seems to be that he gets judges, to the point where a full one-quarter of the federal judiciary at this point are Trump appointments that McConnell has rammed through the Senate. In 2016, he led what was realistically a heist of President Obama's third Supreme Court pick on the basis of an argument that nine months before an election is too close for a president to get to appoint somebody. But now he's committed to replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg when there are fewer than nine weeks until the election. There's not even the pretense that this is in any way consistent. And the Republican senators who keep justifying this on the basis of, well, the American people chose a Republican Senate majority, are forgetting to mention that the American people who chose that Republican Senate majority represent millions fewer votes than those who voted for the Democratic minority in the Senate. I'll spare my larger rant about how terrible and undemocratic the Senate is for another day, but, you know, in this context, worth mentioning. Starting a decade or two back, both parties, but particularly the Republicans, began acting like parliamentary parties, voting and acting as a bloc in a system that's not built for that, making legislation all but impossible. Republicans in Congress screamed bloody murder that President Obama was enacting too many executive orders when they refused to take up legislation on a whole host of issues that needed addressing, But strangely, they've had nothing to say about the fact that President Trump has governed almost entirely in that executive order-based format. If you had to summarize the Republican position over the last 70 years or so on a couple of key issues, it could be boiled down to FBI good, Russia bad. But then along came Donald Trump, and out the window those positions went for an astounding number of Republican elected officials. Russia appears invested in helping the Republican Party electorally? Nah, forget all those things I said, Putin doesn't seem so bad. By the way, look, the word collusion rhymes with the word delusion. Take that, libtards. FBI is investigating President Trump's campaign for potential violations. Terrible. Disgraceful. Always said the FBI were no good. Deep state. Power over principle. Just in case there weren't already a mountain of evidence that the Republican Party's standard bearer does not exactly appear to be committed to democracy if it in any way impedes his own advancement or that of his party, the president, in the first debate, refused to condemn white supremacists and name-checked a specific neo-fascist group called the Proud Boys, telling them to stand by, whatever the hell that means. Then a couple of minutes later, he called on his supporters, some of whom unfortunately we know are armed and unstable, to show up at polls to monitor for voter fraud, before again refusing to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. And now we know that at least some people in the Republican Party and in Trump's campaign are actively exploring ways to exploit arcane legal structures to openly steal the presidency, beyond just having an advantage in the Electoral College, which is itself massively undemocratic. A number of Republicans have left the party in the years since Trump became its leader. 
Some rank-and-file GOP voters, others high-profile former consultants and elected officials, many of whom are now, in fact, working against the president's re-election. But who are the ones that chose to stay? To borrow a line from the president, Some, I assume, are good people. But unfortunately, there are a number of Trump supporters that we just can't say that about. Some have radicalized and become extremists in the way that we see happen in other dangerous political or religious ideologies. Some talk openly about civil war in a way other than, let's not do that again. I mean, what are these armed protests? If not a too-out-of-shape-to-goose-step version of a North Korean missile parade saying, look how big our guns are. They've shown their teeth in the form of the St. Louis couple who were celebrated at the RNC because they pointed guns at a bunch of unarmed, peaceful protesters. And in the form of Kyle Rittenhouse, who barely a day after that disgraceful display at the RNC had Mommy drop him off in Kenosha to shoot at protesters. I know it sounds inflammatory. I hate saying this sort of thing about people with the same passport as me. But some of these folks are ready and willing to kill their political opponents. We can't be blind to that reality. This has gone unchecked and, frankly, at times tacitly encouraged by Trump and those around him. So... Do I think that there are some people in the Republican Party who would be absolutely willing to try some sort of brute force legal measure to swipe the presidency? You bet your ass I do. So if we accept, then, the unfortunate premise that there's at least a critical mass of Republicans, both in the Trump campaign and in some state legislatures or other elected positions, who might be willing to try some sort of end run around the democratic process to reinstall Trump in the White House in the event of a chaotic election— we have to look at what the reaction might be in other groups or institutions that do believe a little bit more in democracy. The first and most obvious group whose reaction we'd need to consider in a scenario like this is the Democratic Party itself. So, in the couple of days since I pulled together the outline for this podcast, there actually has been a bit of news on this front in the form of Nancy Pelosi sending out a letter to colleagues in the House to start laying the groundwork for a potential scenario in which the House has to pick the next president. As far as I see it, though, at least publicly, there really still doesn't seem to be a whole lot of meat on the bones. The Democrats' position really does appear to continue to be, well, we just have to win by as large a margin as possible to avoid a scenario like this. I really hope that this is just a strategy to not appear super radical in public. Although I was on the train with Bill Maher a long time ago saying that the Republicans are going to try and steal the election... I can totally understand how so many Democratic leaders would want to say, well, we just have to win by a lot, rather than go down the rabbit hole of speculating about what sort of tactics we'll have to use in the event of some kind of scrum. Lord knows the Republicans look terrible doing this, so I can see why we'd want to avoid going there in public. But I really hope that in this election, at least, the Democrats break from their usual tradition of bringing an hors d'oeuvre to a gunfight and have at least a couple of dirty tricks of their own up their sleeves. I know it'll make us feel yucky, but the stakes are just too high. If the Republicans are going to send poll watchers into minority-heavy urban precincts to challenge the ballots of voters they consider to be suspicious, maybe the Democrats should be sending poll watchers into heavily white rural precincts in swing states to do the same. Recently, there have been reports of Trump-supporting protesters showing up in super-blue northern Virginia to protest in a way that physically blocked early voters from entering their polling places to cast their ballots. I'm not saying the Democrats should pull something like that per se, but maybe they could consider sponsoring a series of extremely enthusiastic Election Day gay pride events as near as legally allowed to polling places in red areas. 
just brainstorming. Bottom line, the Republicans, to an even greater degree than usual, are playing the hardest form of hardball. This year, at least, the Democrats simply cannot afford to be playing some other softer form of ball. Another entity whose reaction we need to take into consideration in the context of some messy election scenario like this is the loose conglomeration of national law enforcement agencies and personnel. Unfortunately, some parts of our national law enforcement have effectively been corrupted to varying degrees, either by the Trump administration broadly or by our royalist attorney general Bill Barr specifically. On multiple occasions just this year, Barr has managed to cobble together a fairly effective paramilitary force of unmarked agents from various shadowy corners of the Department of Justice not ordinarily involved with standard law enforcement to attack protesters from Lafayette Square to really horrible, really terrible, crime-infested, Democrat-run cities. This force, as far as we know, has done exactly what the administration wanted. There were apparently no qualms about snatching protesters off the streets in unmarked vehicles or tear-gassing and beating unarmed civilians. If you haven't seen it already, there's a video that uh, really demonstrates the zeal that some of these folks bring to the task of violently suppressing protesters who aren't politically aligned with the administration. In it, one of these agents, clad head-to-toe in tactical gear, repeatedly swings a bat like he was trying to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball into the side of an unarmed Navy vet who had just walked over to talk to them. So would these people follow orders from Bill Barr, even if Barr were involved in an open attempt to seize power? Yeah, I think so. Other parts of federal law enforcement haven't been brought to heel under Barr and corrupted into some sort of Praetorian Guard paramilitary, but have been pretty effectively beaten down and demoralized by endless attacks from Trump. All of which is to say, if the FBI, which is realistically the organization I'm referring to, were ordered to participate in some sort of semi-legal coup if, say, Trump declared an insurrection in the wake of an unclear election result, how many of those agents would walk off post, or better yet, disobey orders and work against it? Hard to say, but I really hope somebody is putting out some feelers to get a sense for that. An inevitable factor in some sort of unstable situation like this would be the presence of large numbers of civilian protesters, which bears considering as, realistically, its own separate entity. Now, in the presence of stable democracy and the rule of law, protests, particularly if they're peaceful, I'd argue that in the presence of stable democracy and the rule of law, violent protests are actually usually counterproductive, can be effective at generating political capital and changing hearts and minds. But in the absence of stable democracy and the rule of law, which unfortunately might be the situation we're looking at here, mass protests are only sometimes effective. Sometimes authoritarian governments really are able to just put them down, as we're seeing in Belarus right now. If the protests are large enough, and if really the only people that are in the streets actively on the government side against the protesters are forces of the government itself, sometimes the government will yield, especially if those government forces don't want to shoot at their fellow citizens. The thing is, movements like this in other countries have often been effective because the protests generate international pressure, coming from countries like the United States, whose government and people have tended to stand up for democracy and the rule of law. Oops. There is no U.S. equivalent to save us. I think there's no single country on Earth whose government wields enough economic power to actually force a change in behavior by the Trump administration on the scale that would be required. And the only one that comes close has already tanked the world's economy in the form of a once-in-a-century pandemic they unleashed on the rest of us through negligence and obfuscation. 
Furthermore, even before that government built a terrifyingly dystopian surveillance state and a vast network of concentration camps, <coughs> re-education facilities, to house a pesky ethnic minority, well, the People's Republic isn't exactly famous for its principled opposition to authoritarianism, so I don't think we should expect them to come riding to the rescue of American democracy anytime soon. Beyond some hypothetical country bringing economic pressure to bear, the United States as a country is virtually impregnable to military intervention from any other country, and we know it. And this particular administration is completely impervious to criticism or other more civilized forms of pressure that might hypothetically come from other Western democracies. On top of the unlikelihood that a protest movement would receive any meaningful assistance from other well-meaning nations interested in protecting American democracy, Mass civilian protests realistically are less likely to be effective at halting an authoritarian takeover if there are other civilians backing the takeover in the street shooting at the protesters, which, unfortunately, as we've explored, there are a number of people willing and very much able to do. Bottom line, in the event of a Republican attempt to swipe the presidency despite not having won the election, massive civilian protests will absolutely be called for and should absolutely happen. But we should have no illusion that this alone will necessarily be able to save democracy. Another entity whose reaction we need to contemplate when gaming out potential post-election turmoil is the military. I discuss in more detail on that previous episode what happened earlier this year when Trump tried to get the military involved in suppressing protesters he doesn't like, and the broader eagerness by the Trump administration to politicize the military. Bottom line, Sure, okay, we didn't end up having the 82nd Airborne rolling over left-wing protesters, despite Senator Tom Cotton's suggestion that that happened. But they were brought up from North Carolina, and the military's fairly weak resistance to attempts by the Trump administration to politicize it should not exactly fill us with confidence. It's come out that a number of people in the government, including Trump even, referred to the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, as Yesper, since he's seen as being totally unable to ever say no to the president. Not a great quality in the Secretary of Defense. More recently, Congresswomen Mikey Sherrill and Lisa Slotkin, both of whom are relatively moderate freshman House Democrats and also total badasses with strong career and personal ties to the military and intelligence communities, publicly asked General Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, what the military would do in some hypothetical, unstable situation after the election. And Milley basically said that the military would plan to stay out of it and saw no role for the military in an election situation. This sounds good, and as far as I know, both congresswomen responded positively to what Milley said. But think about it. If a combination of armed vigilante Trump supporters and Bill Barr's militia, and I'm sorry to have to say, probably some local police forces as well, are willing to resort to, let's say, some unsavory tactics in the staged chaos of a post-election period in which Trump has deliberately rejected or muddied the results, who's going to stop them? Again, I really hope that somewhere behind the scenes, conversations are happening between the relevant actors as to whether or not the military would stand by and accept some sort of semi-legal attempted putsch by the Trump campaign in the event anything like that were ever to happen. I also very much hope that we never end up having to find out how these various entities would need to react in the event of some sort of situation like this, and it now, before the election, falls to all of us to do everything we can to make sure that the questions that I've brought up in this podcast episode remain hypothetical. So what then are some of the things we can do? First of all, vote. And, unless you literally can't, I create an exception for myself and my fellow Democrats abroad as I'd have to physically swim across the Atlantic, vote in person. 
I know it's unfair that we have to overcome obstacles in the form of lines, voter ID laws, and the goddamn coronavirus, but voting in person is the most effective way to avoid the red mirage effect. Here's what that means. In a lot of states, in-person ballots will get counted first. So Trump could look like he's ahead on election night and declare victory on November 3rd, even though the votes will come in for Biden later. This will make it easier for the Republicans to cast doubt on all the mail-in ballots that arrive afterwards. So wrap yourselves up and everyone else you know in masks, gloves, and a hazmat suit and go vote in person. Beyond just voting, now's a great time to get involved with a campaign more broadly. There are tons of options online for volunteering remotely. Also, if you've ever thought about donating to a campaign and still have two cents to rub together despite the fact that the economy was wiped out by the coronavirus, now's the time. Unless the election's an absolute blowout, the campaigns are going to need money for legal fights in the period after the election. Beyond getting directly involved with a campaign, talk to any friends you have in the military or in the government, especially law enforcement, about what they might do in the event of an attempted power grab. We can't expect the leaders of the relevant organizations to save us here. The good ones like Mattis have already been pushed out, not that they're actually doing anything to help either, and have been replaced by royalists like Bill Barr or weak lackeys like Mark Esper at DOD. The rank and file of these organizations have just as much to lose as do the rest of us if American democracy goes down the toilet. So they should be thinking right now about what kind of role they might be pushed into playing in the event of some sort of instability post-election. Besides having some specific conversations with some specific people in our lives, we can help in the short term, I think, by talking about this issue as it pertains to the election and largely just this issue, especially if we're in a conversation with somebody with whom we don't necessarily agree on some things. Some pundits and political operatives have publicly hoped that the Republican machinations to in some way swipe the presidency and evade unfavorable election results don't get too much oxygen since there are some numbers that show that when people feel that the election is in some way compromised, they're less likely to bother to participate. I get that. I do. But I disagree. Look, this is a moment where we should be driving the numbers, not just driven by them. I think that most Americans do, in fact, care about living in a democracy, and if people are actually aware of what's at stake, that a failure to vote this time may, in fact, result in voting no longer being a meaningful option in the future— they will turn out. People's political consciousnesses have been saturated with everything for several years. It's overwhelming, which is why it's critical that right now we focus narrowly on this issue to end all others. There is nothing of parallel importance to the attempted power grab, which we're seeing the groundwork being laid for as we speak, and there just isn't the bandwidth for everything else right now. Most of us who care a lot about politics are interested in a wide range of issues. Climate change, for example. Without a doubt, the single most important long-term threat to humanity. Can't believe I'm saying this, as I have personally been furious for years that it hasn't been prioritized sufficiently either by politicians or by many in the media, but climate change probably doesn't have the same kind of broad political resonance as does the literal fate of our democracy. So it can take a seat on the backbench for a couple of weeks while we make sure that our democracy doesn't go the way of Trump Airlines. Beyond our own individual pet issues... Trump will surely try to anger and distract us and trigger the libs with other dangled shiny objects to make us mad or divert us from the larger issue. If passed as prologue, it could very well take the form of some ugly racialized attack on a non-white member of Congress. But as disgusting as this has been and undoubtedly will be, right now we just can't take the bait. I could go on, 
down the laundry list of other critical issues that we should all care deeply about and plan to solve when our democracy is safe. But the bottom line is this. There is the very real possibility of an attempted end run around the election <laughs> by the few remaining non-COVID-infected members of the Trump campaign and the Republican Party. Meanwhile, more than 200,000 Americans are dead as a direct result of the homicidal incompetence of the administration and their enablers in Congress, who evidently can't be bothered even to protect themselves from the virus, much less the public. In the short term, that's the ground that we're fighting on. For the sake of the hundreds of thousands more who could die of the virus, and the sake of democracy itself, we cannot afford to be distracted, we cannot afford to hold back out of a sense of propriety, we cannot afford to lose. But hey, I mean, if it turns out that Trump's attacks on democracy for the last several years have been just passes for a sense of humor to him, if the post office actually ends up working perfectly fine despite the numerous attempts to undermine it, and then, miraculously, despite the anticipated historic voter turnout, all the polls were even more wrong than they were in 2016 and Trump actually wins a big majority of the vote, well, so be it. Hashtag MAGA. The people will have spoken and we should accept the results. But that doesn't seem very likely, all things considered. I sure hope everybody's ready. As I said a couple of months back, I'm afraid that the several weeks after this election could be the most perilous to American democracy since 1860. On that cheery note, that's all for this episode of OK Talks. If you're enjoying the show so far, or even if you just like having it as background noise while folding the laundry or something, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you really want to do me a solid, you can like or review the podcast on one of those platforms, or share it with other folks you know who might be interested in listening to it. If you haven't already and are able to do so, please make a plan to vote. In case I somehow wasn't hair on fire enough about this during the episode, this is a critical moment. We need all hands on deck. Until the next episode, stay safe, and thanks for listening.